0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: The Statue of Liberty holds her torch high in New York Harbor and proclaims the words of Emma Lazarus. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. Subscribe to this series on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm pleased to welcome David Nassau to the show today to talk about his recent book, The Last Million Europe's Displaced Persons from World War to Cold War. Professor David Nassau is an historian and biographer whose works include The Patriarch, The Remarkable Life and Turbulent Times of Joseph P. Kennedy, Andrew Carnegie, The Gospel of Wealth, Essays, and The Chief, The Life of William Randolph Hearst. David Nassau, welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be here. The biographies you've published over the past 20 years have won awards and international recognition. Why did you decide to return to writing history? Well, first, I, I think
0: the, the biographies all, have been history,
1: uh, just with a,
0: with a different slant. But it's, it's a subgenre under history. I decided to move away from biography for this book because the story, as I discovered it, was so immense, so complicated, involved so many people on so many continents that there was no way to encompass it within a biographical form. I told the stories of many people, but not of one big mogul as I did with Carnegie and Hearst and Joseph Kennedy. I, I was moved. I almost felt it unlike my other books, a, a sort of a mission, a mandate that I was given because this was a story that was important that we should all know Americans, Brits, Germans, Jews, Christians, Israelis. And yet, we don't know it. It's a mystery to me why we don't know it. But the story of the displaced persons, who when the war in Europe was over, were marooned, isolated, virtually imprisoned behind barbed wire, sometimes in displaced persons camp in Germany for three to five years while the world debated their fate. That was a story that I felt needed to be told.
1: And I was going to tell it. Yes, it was, it was shocking to realize. I just really, uh, I learned a lot from it. Uh, there were uh, an estimated 7 to 11 million displaced persons in Europe in 1945 at the war's end. Who were they, and why was it important to tell their story? The, the story I tell, when,
0: when the war is over in Germany, um, Germany, in order to fight World War II, especially on the Eastern Front, the, um, the Nazi high command believed that they would knock out the Soviet Union, within a matter matter of months, the British would concede, the war would be over. When they recognized that the Soviet Union was putting up a fight, that the Red Army was formidable, that they would be at this for years, the Germans had no choice but to substitute for the millions of soldiers who were on the front lines in the East to bring laborers into Germany to do the work that they had once done. Between seven and 10 or 11 million foreigners, non-Germans were brought into Germany, many of them to work in the mines, the mills on the farms, in the factories that the Germans who had been sent off to war had abandoned. Of the seven to 11 million displaced persons, and these include prisoners of war, political prisoners, concentration camp victims, forced laborers, slave laborers. When the war is over, the Western Europeans go home again. The Italians go home again. Most of the Russians and the Ukrainians and the Belarusians go home again, but a million refugees remain in Germany because they refuse to go home again, or they have no homes to return to, like the Jews. The last million, the subject of my book, come from three major streams. These are the displaced persons who don't go home again when the war is over. There are the Poles and the Ukrainians who had been brought mostly young. 50% of them women who have been brought forcibly into Germany from the beginning of the war to the end to do the work of the German soldiers who are now on the Eastern Front. The second group of displaced persons that I write about, the last million, were the Lithuanians, the Latvians, the Estonians, and some Ukrainians who escaped their homelands, who fled in advance of the Red Army in 1944 and 1945. Why did they flee? They fled because they did not want to live under Soviet domination and because a large number of them had cooperated in one way or another with the Nazi occupiers during the war. And these Latvians, Lithuanians, Ukrainians, and Estonians knew that once the Germans were defeated and the Red Army had reconquered their lands, they would be punished and punished severely. So at the end of the war, they fled with the German army back into Germany, where they believed they would be safe. The third group of displaced persons are the Jewish survivors. As the war comes to a close in 1944, 1945, as the Red Army moves into and through Poland and the Baltic states, the Nazis recognize that they have to hide the atrocities they had committed in the death camps and the concentration camps from the world. And they do that by burning the corpses by dismantling the camps, by dismantling as much as they can of Bergenau and Auschwitz, and death marching the surviving Jews into Germany. And why do they do this? Because they make the conscious decision, and you can see it in the documents, that instead of gassing the Jews, the surviving Jews, and including a large number of Hungarian Jews, instead of gassing them, they are going to work them to death in the underground mines and armaments factories that Hitler hopes will end the war with the German victory. So we don't know how many, 50, 60, 70,000 survivors are put onto trucks, railroad cars, or walked, death marched from their camps in Poland back into Germany. Of those who survived the march, and a good 20% of them die on the way, they're, they're put to work. And when the war is over, there are maybe twenty to 30,000 of them still alive. Half of them die on liberation. The twenty or thirty thousand who survive compose comprise part of the last million that I write about in my book. From nineteen forty five to nineteen forty six, the composition of the last million changes because the Poles and the Ukrainians begin to go home again. They had been part of the last million. The forced laborers and the slave laborers who are not Jewish return home, while the number of Jewish survivors explodes in size from 20 to 30,000 to maybe 250,000. And where do they come from? The 80% to 90% of the Polish Jews who survive World War II survive because they escape across the border into the Soviet Union. They spend the war years at hard labor in the Asiatic reaches of the Soviet Union. And when the war is over, Stalin sends them back to Poland. That's 200 to 250,000 Polish Jews. When they get back to Poland, they realize that there is more anti-Semitism and more violent and vicious anti-Semitism than they had experienced before the war. There are in 1946, there are a series of pogroms in Poland. The Polish Jews recognize that they cannot remain in Poland and they recognize as well that the only safe place in Europe for them is in Germany the land of their murderers behind barbed wire and displaced persons camps where they will be watched over and guarded by American soldiers and fed and sheltered by the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration.
1: So how did it happen that Nazis and Nazi collaborators, people who were guilty of war crimes, were labeled refugees, and then were preferred for immigration by the U.S. and other countries, while their victims were left behind. What what happens? What what, what I discovered in writing
0: this book? Again, I'm I'm a U.S. historian, so you know I, I I knew some of this stuff, or I thought I did, and I'm a a New York Jew, so I knew some of this stuff or thought I did, but I was wrong. What happens is that World War morphs almost seamlessly into Cold War. And the Cold War puts an emphasis on a new enemy, the Soviets, the communists. And the Nazi collaborators who had escaped into Germany as displaced persons and hid their past as displaced persons are now prized. The Latvians and the Lithuanians, they are now prized. Why? Because they're anti-communists. Because they can say, we may have fought alongside the Nazis, but we did so not because we wanted to support Nazism and the Germans, but because we wanted to we we wanted to fight the Soviets and fight the communists. So as as anti-communists, they're welcomed. in in 1947 1948, it is decided that the only way to get the displaced persons out of Germany um, is to open the camps to labor recruiters from all over the world. And these labor recruiters come to the displaced persons camps and they choose the most able-bodied workers they can find to go back to Australia or Canada or South Africa or Britain or Belgium to do the work of rebuilding their nations in the post-war period. And these labor recruiters from around the world, they choose the Latvians, the Lithuanians because they had not suffered the way the Jews had, or even the Polish forced laborers had. They were white, they were European, they were Protestant, uh, and they were welcomed. Nobody wanted the Jews. In the United States, if I can jump to the United States, the Americans refused. To accept any of the last million. We keep the doors of this nation, the gates of this nation closed to the victims of World War II, to the displaced persons, to the innocent. It is not until June of 1946, June of 1946, I'm sorry, June of 1948, three years after the war had ended, that the American Congress, passes a Displaced Persons Act, and that Displaced Persons Act is written in such a way to give preference to those whose lands had been annexed by a foreign power, namely the Latvians, and to keep out, to deny visas to those who had entered the displaced persons camps in 1946, namely the Jews who had spent the war in Poland.
1: Um, it, well, it's a, tell, you know, tell us about yeah. the uh, the politics behind that. Now that that you did jump to America, what what were the politics? Was it straight anti-Semitism, or were there other dynamics, political dynamics, going on that caused that? What you, it's,
0: it's a great question.
1: Yeah, there, there were, you know that. What
0: what I've discovered is a as a historian is there's no such thing as anti-Semitism. There are anti-Semitism's with a plural, mm-hmm. anti-Semitism, which is the the hatred, the distrust of Jews, as a racial category. It changes forms. It changes shapes. It changes discourses over time. It changes images. In the United States after Hitler. The anti-Semites could no longer use the same terminology to keep the Jews out. They had to find a new way of doing so. And what they did was they revived a early 20th century uh, myth that the Jews had caused the Bolshevik Revolution. The Pope had said as much. um, And Hitler had said as much that Jews were dangerous because they were subversives. They were revolutionaries. Members of Congress elected by the people, mostly Southern Democrats and Midwestern Republicans, make the argument in 1947 and 1948 that any displaced persons who came from Poland or who had spent time in the Soviet Union and had not come into, back to Germany in the camps until 1946, they had to be suspected of being Soviet spies or communists or Soviet sympathizers. And the fact was that it was the Red Army that had liberated the Jews. Um, so the the argument was taken up, we've got to keep the Jews out of the United States because they're security risks. I mean, it, it's an absurd, absurd argument, but yeah. it won votes and it won hearts and it won minds.
1: And it was successful in making its way into legislation. And of course the irony on top of the irony was that the Red Army was an ally at that time. It, it was an American ally in World War II absolutely
0: absolutely
1: um, but you know every, everybody you know by 1947
0: 1948 that fact was conveniently um, forgotten yeah uh, and you know the Soviets now it, it's it's frightening to see how quickly certainly in the in the American Congress and in the press as well uh, the horrible crimes, of Hitler and the Nazis uh, were put aside, were forgotten. I mean, the the cons- almost the consensus, or the consensus was that who cares? You know, we defeated him. Hitler's dead. Fascism is finished. Nazism is finished. Why worry about crimes in the past? Let's forget. Let's forgive. Let's move on because we've got another enemy to fight. It's no longer the Gestapo, it's the KGB. It's no longer Hitler, it's Stalin. It's no longer Germany, it's the Soviets. Um, And, you know, when, when we began in this country, the United States of America, to accept displaced persons after June of 1948, there was no scrutiny of the past of those who had been or might have been Nazi collaborators or war criminals. You know, they just were welcomed in. And the Jews who had spent time in the Soviet Union were were kept out. You know, th- there's a great story in a book by Joe Berger, Joseph Berger, who was a columnist for the New York Times and education editor. And he was born in a displaced persons camp. His parents were Polish Jews who had spent the war in the Soviet Union. And Joe, you know, was told he was born in a displaced persons camp. When it was time for him to go to City College, City College wanted to see his birth certificate. So we went to his mother, this is Joseph Berger, went to his mother and he said, Mom, where's my birth certificate? So she said, Joey, I got something to tell you. She said we we've kept it from you, but you weren't born in Germany in a displaced persons camp. You were born in the Soviet Union. Um, so he said, "Mom, why did you keep this from me for, you know, for 18 years? Why did you lie to me?" And his mother said, "Joey, we were afraid that if anybody knew that you had been born in the Soviet Union, they never would have let us into the United States." And there'd be a black mark against you for the rest of your life. I mean, wow! It, yeah, this is what the, these displaced persons had to had to deal with. On I mean, the well, other, there were any number of Ukrainian and Latvian and Romanian and Estonian war criminals who simply disguised their past. Nobody investigated them, and they they got into this country. Um, you know. We know some of the names: uh, John John Demianur from the Ukraine, right? Um, i from Estonia, Bishop Virel mm-hmm. Trifa from Romania, and and most recently in 2018, a man named Yakiv Palij from Ukraine was extradited from the United States, was deported. Um, these were all war criminals. And they had been let into the United States because nobody had investigated their past. They they made up fictional pasts. They had no documents. They were let in anyway. Um, let, and let's it the United States. You know, there's right. an extraordinary story I I read about in the Foreign Office archives in Great Britain, the British Foreign Office. And there's the story of the, the British who England needed miners after the war, coal miners, and they brought into the country a, a bunch of Latvian DPs as they called them guest laborers. And if, you know, they, after three or four years, they could apply for citizenship. And these Latvians went to work, were put to work in the mines. That's why they were brought into, into England. And shortly after they went to work, their fellow miners, the English miners, saw that dozens of them had Waffen SS tattoos on their armpits because these Latvians had been members of the Waffen SS Latvian division. They had fought you know with the Nazis. So the English miners refused to go to work unless with these Nazi collaborators. So what did the foreign office and the home office do in England? Um, they said, well, you know, we need these people. We'll continue to bring them in. But from now on, anybody with a Waffen SS tattoo will be put to work in an environment where they never
1: have to take off their shirts. Well, that's a solution to a (laughs) moral-ethical problem, yeah. But, David, let's go back to the DP camps for a minute, Uh, because um, I, I know people who were born in DP camps, too, and until I read your book, I never really grasped what that meant. Describe for us the German DP camps, a place where people lived for three or even five years.
0: Yeah, in in the
1: beginning,
0: um, the Americans and the British and the UN agency that was going to run these camps, they figured that they'd be, you know, the camps were temporary and within three to four months, everybody would go home. When they realized that was not the case, they winterized the camps and they recognized that they had to give the residents of the camps the right to run those camps. The UN didn't have the personnel to do that. So what happened is that the camps were divided by nationality. The Jews who were originally lumped in, depending on their homelands, with non-Jewish Poles or non-Jewish Latvians were given their own camps. And in each of these camps, we had communities in exile that practiced their religion, that educated their children, that had cultural events, that tried to keep alive the memory of Latvia or the Ukraine or, you know, Poland. In the Jewish camps, there was no memory of a homeland. There was a dream of a homeland and in the Jewish camps, the emphasis was increasingly on Palestine. And in the beginning, in the Jewish camps, there were debates between the Bundists who said, we can stay in Europe and the Zionists who said, there is no place for us in Zion, in Europe. It did not take long at all before the Zionists won that argument because it became clear that Europe was as anti-Semitic after the war as it had been before. There was no place for the Jews there. America didn't want the Jews. Canada didn't want them. No place on earth wanted them. The only place they could go to escape from the camps in Germany was was Israel or was Palestine at that moment in time. So so in all of these camps, there are cultural events, educational events. There's an attempt to create a community of exiles behind barbed wire in Germany. Uh, That doesn't mean there aren't relationships with the Germans. There are black market activities that thrive in every one of these camps. Um, There are relationships with Germans who are brought into work at some of these camps. But these are enclaves um, that pursue a cultural nationalism, hoping to keep alive the dream or the, the hope
1: of returning
0: to a homeland.
1: So let's move on to that homeland. In 1948, uh, Israel is a state, and having survived the multi-country Arab attack, uh, it, it encouraged the displaced persons to take a chance and risk their futures in Israel. But even that was complicated. You write on page 439, the State Department still smarting over Truman's decisions first to support partition, then to recognize Israeli independence, did its best to impede the migration of military-age men from the DP camps to Israel. And the British Foreign Office refused to allow any Jews under their control to go to Israel. What, What was the impact on these people, the Jewish survivors of hell on earth, who now, after that, after somehow surviving death marches and concentration camps and and things we can hardly imagine except in nightmares then were kept homeless in camps uh, by countries that refused them entry even to their own ancestral homeland what what do people do in that situation how how do they cope the, the well, you know one of the this is not the story
0: i tell in this book is is a story of, of tragedy for the most part. But it's all also a story of resilience and hope. The Jews in the camps, the displaced Jews, the survivors, they call themselves the surviving remnant. They have no luxury. They, they can't afford to feel sorry for themselves. They can't afford to give in to mourning, they recognize what they've lost but they also recognize that it is their responsibility to rebuild a jewish community to make sure that hitler hasn't won hitler wanted to destroy judaism and jews the camp residents were not going to let him do that and they you know they're, they're remarkable people they never give up hope on the israeli side the Jewish agency and then Ben-Gurion, his cabinet, they refuse to buckle under. And although a war is being intermittently fought with long truces with the Arab nations and the Arab League, uh, Ben-Gurion with the help of American and British donors um, send their own ships the Israelis rent ships to take the displaced persons out of Germany, into France and into Italy and into Bulgaria to take the journey uh, to Haifa and and to Israel. There's a debate that goes on in the in the Israeli cabinet. There are a variety of Israelis of high rank, who say, we're fighting a war, we can't afford to bring in these people. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're ill, they're frail, many of them, we can bring in the young ones who can fight. But a lot of the survivors are just going to be a drag on the economy and a drag on the nation. And, you know, they don't speak Hebrew, that it's going to be hard for them to learn Hebrew. Um, they're the old world, we're the new world. Maybe in five years or 10 years, we can, we can accommodate them. And Ben-Gurion says, no, no. It is our responsibility as the Jewish state to find a home for every Jew who wants to come here and who needs to come here, whether they're coming from the Middle East or whether they're coming from the displaced persons camps in Germany. And, you know, he, he makes way. Uh, it is a terrible burden in the beginning, on the state of Israel. Uh, and they, they really don't have the resources to accommodate and accept the displaced persons. They allow them into the country. They do the best they can, but the plight of many of the displaced persons, once they, they get to Israel is, is, is not a pleasant one. Um is, I mean, they, they suffer, but they, but they suffer in their own homeland, which is different, which is different. Um, they have problems finding jobs. They have problems finding work. They have problems learning to live in a society where the language is Hebrew, where Yiddish is, is frowned on, where, uh, in a new world. Um, but But they persevere and they make up a large part today, the descendants of the displaced persons of the Israeli population.
1: At the same time that this was happening, uh, Simon Wiesenthal and the Nazi hunters got their start. Tell us about their efforts to identify Nazi collaborators and war criminals in the DP camps. And prevent them for, from getting visas to resettle in the West. Isn't it? It's a you know. Thank you for bringing that up.
0: It, it's, you know, it's it's another part of the story that nobody knew about for for a long time. When it was discovered that there were Nazi collaborators and war criminals in the United States and in England and Australia and Canada, and they had, you know. Disguised themselves, made their way, invented new pasts for them as pasts for them as displaced persons. The the excuse that was made by the governments and the immigration authorities will, was well how could we tell who, who knew you know we couldn't investigate every one of these people. What I learned was that Simon Wiesenthal and the displaced persons themselves and the Jewish survivors took upon themselves within the camps and in Poland and in Czechoslovakia and in Austria, the responsibility for identifying the collaborators and the war criminals and the virulent, murderous anti-Semites. And in each of the displaced persons camps, and in Munich, there was a central authority, a historical commission, and it took testimonies from the survivors. It made lists. It made names. It, I mean, it collected names, just as Wiesenthal did. If the American authorities or the British or the Australians had cared, all they had to do was to consult With the displaced persons themselves who would have said so-and-so, so-and-so was a war criminal, so-and-so was a member of the auxiliary police who identified Jews and led them to the killing fields to be shot. Each of the displaced persons who came into the United States was photographed. These photographs could have been passed around. The Soviets and the Poles had stolen Nazi records, and they knew who the members of the Latvian and the Estonian and the Ukrainian Waffen-SS divisions were. But nobody cared, as, as I said earlier, um, except for, you know, the obsessed and the cranks, as they were called, like Wiesenthal. Mm-hmm. Um, in, you know, in 1945, Wiesenthal puts together a list of Latvians and he sends it to the displaced persons camps in the United States. And he said, I'm gathering evidence against these people. Um, please, if you come into contact with them, we think they were guards in the camps. He's only talking about Latvians. And he names 20, 30 names. Well, I've followed you know, those names and large numbers of them end up in the United States or Canada. Um so it was possible to identify them if anybody had the will to identify them, if the INS had the will to identify them, if the British Home Office had the will to identify and keep out the Nazi collaborators. But, you know, no one, no one cared. Uh, more cared well, sufficiently.
1: One notorious case that you mentioned is the mass murderer... VRL Trifa, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah. Uh, And you describe in the book how, despite public knowledge of his fascist past, he lived in peace in the U.S. for decades. Tell us a bit about how that happened and how it ended. These are frightening stories. He's, He's not the only one. I mean,
0: he says over and over again, he just denies. He denies and he denies and he denies and, and says none of this is true. Meanwhile, there are lots of Romanian Jews who survive and they come to the United States and they identify this man. They say this man, you know, was a killer. He was a member of the Iron Guard. He organized pogroms in Romania and Trifa dismisses them. He says they're, they're communist liars. You know they're they're out to get me. Finally, the the INS knew who this guy was, but they don't move against him. It's not until the middle nineteen seventies when a New York Times reporter, Ralph Blumenthal, goes to YIVO, the research center in in New York that had moved from Vilna from Vilnius, and and he does his research and he finds photographs and newspaper articles about Trifa. And he goes and he I says to Trefa, look, he says, were you ever, did you, you know, did you ever incite riots against the Jews? And Trifa says, no. And then Blumenthal shows him the article with his with his photograph. And Trifa said, well, maybe I did it, but they made me do it. Hmm. Um, right. He's- He lives 40 years in the United States before he's, you know, deported, he leaves voluntarily in the end. Uh, A free man is never punished for his for his crimes. And there are many, many, many others. um, Names and stories I detail, you know, in in my book, it's not until 30 years after these people entered the United States, that newspaper reporters and Congresswoman Elizabeth Holtzman of Brooklyn um, demand, go to the INS, they've been leaked documents from someone within the INS, the Immigration and Naturalization Service. And they, they go, Liz Holtzman, who's a Congresswoman, goes to the head of the INS. And she said, I, I hear all these rumors, they can't be true. Did you have a list of, you know, war criminals, Nazi collaborators who came into this country as displaced persons? And she expects the INS director will say, that's ridiculous. The INS director says, yes, that's true. And beginning in the, you know, in the seventies, Congress finally establishes an office within the justice department to seek out these people. And once the Americans do it, the Canadians, the Australians and the British do the same. They set up commissions to try to find these war criminals and collaborators. Who, But it's too late. It's too late, 40 years later. Um, and, and worse than that, you know, the, these people, because of American law and British law, if you haven't, if you've committed a crime... Outside the boundaries of the nation, you can't be tried for that crime within the nation, right? You've got to be deported. And and you can only deport it if some nation accepts you. So it's it's what what is accomplished by all these commissions um, is not justice, but it is the beginning of a correction of the historical record. So it's, we, we understand as historians what happened. We understand how these people got into the United States. and remained Well, let's,
1: let's go back, speaking of history, because we, we left the uh, DPs in 1948, <laughs> and they were still in the camps in 1950, five years after the end of World War II, and, which was the year that the Korean War started. Um, how did that war impact the DPs who were still living in the camps?
0: The most of the DPs, the vast majority of the displaced persons, had by the time the Korean War ended had left. Um, the again, there was a perceived to be a worldwide labor shortage at the time. Certainly, all the European nations that had fought in the war had labor shortages. The Canadians, the Australians, the South Americans believed that they needed more workers, that they needed larger populations. So they took large numbers of displaced persons. Those who were left behind were the ill, the old, the infirm, and a large number of Orthodox Jews who didn't recognize the state of Israel and didn't want to go there, and a significant number of Jews who had gone to Israel, fought in the war, and and just couldn't, didn't want to live in that situation anymore. And they had come back to Germany hoping that they'd be able to get to the United States. Uh, the Korean War made it even more difficult, certainly for the Jews, because A law was passed, the Internal Security Act was passed in the United States, um, the McCarran Act, which made it even more difficult for those who might be suspected as being sympathetic to communism to get into the United States. Meanwhile, the CIA begins actively recruiting these Nazi collaborators who are still in the DP camps, and bringing some of them to the United States to foment anti-communist hysteria in this this nation, in the United States. Um, The Voice of America, the Committee for a Free Latvia, the Committee for a Free Europe, all CIA-funded organizations rely, the Voice of America rely on these Nazi collaborators, who have now rebranded themselves as anti-communists and are brought into the United States. The British and the Americans select Ukrainian and some Baltic displaced persons and train them and prepare them to infiltrate back into their former nations to build underground cells in the event that there's a World War III. Uh, So as the Cold War intensifies, it becomes more difficult for Jews who are suspected of being Bolshevik sympathizers to enter the United States and other countries. And it becomes easier for the Nazi collaborators who say, oh, yeah, I fought with the Nazis, but because I hated the Soviets and I still hate them uh, to enter these countries.
1: What a sorry history! Yes. Uh, when when were the DP camps finally closed and all the residents settled elsewhere? It really takes until nineteen
0: into the middle nineteen fifties. Again, it, it's it's a small number, and and I tell the the incredible story of the this last contingent of Orthodox Jews who don't want to leave the camps. Um, and the German, West German government does everything it possibly can to get them out of the camps and eventually brings in you know, the uh, Jewish organizations, the uh, Jewish distribution uh, committee and the UN to negotiate with the Orthodox Jews. And the Orthodox Jews demand that they're only going to leave the camps if they get their own community and their own synagogue and their own schools um, in their own community in Germany. And the West German government says, we can't do that. We're not going to establish another ghetto. And finally, after a long period of negotiations, the last remnant of the Orthodox Jews have moved out. The Poles are, their camps are closed down. The Poles who had remained in, in Germany, again, it's the infirm, it's the old, it's the sick. Um, they're sent at the end. They are, they are allowed to leave. Um, they're encouraged to leave their camps, um, and, and they do so. Um, and most of them are integrated in one way or another into uh, German society. Um, and this, you know, some of them are still there today. But by the middle 50s, the, the camps are gone.
1: Uh, it's a long time. It is a I, long time, isn't it? Yeah. In, in 2019, uh, the United Nations High Commissioner on Refugees, Said that the number of people fleeing violence is the highest since World War II, uh, and the number of displaced persons—that means both within their own country and also in another country—reached uh, uh, seventy, more than seventy million, uh, up from forty-three million only ten years before. What what lessons? can we learn from the last million for today's refugees and DPs? Well, I, th- I think the first
0: lesson we should learn is one that Franklin Roosevelt taught us in 1943. You know, in 1943, Roosevelt understands, anticipates that when World War II is over, they're gonna be millions of displaced persons. And it's going to be an international problem that no nation can solve by itself. So Roosevelt brings the leaders of 43, delegates from 43 nations together to form the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration to care for the displaced persons. Roosevelt recognized that refugees are an international problem and only an international problem. Agency and international cooperation can work to to solve these problems. Um, so that's the first lesson we have to learn. Regrettably, the United States, under President Trump, has withdrawn from the international community, and rather than cooperate in finding a solution, has said it's not our problem. You know. We're, we're America first. We're going to put a protective screen border wall around us. Um, Roosevelt understood that that was impossible, that this was one world. The second lesson I think we have to learn is we, we have to separate truth from falsehood, certainly in the United States. And we've got to understand who these people are and why they were displaced. And we've got to look carefully at the millions of displaced persons. And we've got to separate out the civilians who are innocent of any crimes whatsoever and provide them with the means either to safely return to their homes or to be resettled elsewhere. You know, there's a third lesson I think here Hannah Arendt famously said that only those who are members of nations, citizens of nations, will have their civil rights protected by those nations. That when you're stateless, you have nobody to protect you. You have no rights if you're stateless. And and we've got to find a way. And I don't know what it is. We've got to find a way to create organizations, international organizations that give agency and give rights uh, to the displaced. And then I guess in the end, we've got to recognize that wars, whether they're civil wars or wars between nations, don't end with the cessation of hostilities that wars breed suffering that lasts after the soldiers have gone home. And the only way to prevent displaced persons and refugees is to somehow adjudicate problems before they lead to wars that lead to the displacement and suffering of innocent civilians.
1: Well, I can say amen to that, David. You've given us a great deal to think about, and and really, the last million is a big contribution to the understanding of history. Uh, that if well, that would be all you do, that would be enough. However, have you been thinking about, or is it starting off on a new project? I I have. It, it's.
0: You know, but part of the reason I, I got into this is that uh, Americans certainly don't understand what war does, I don't think, because we don't fight wars on our own shores, you know, in, in our, own, on our own continent. So we have no understanding of what happened during World War II, um, of the suffering, the destruction, the devastation. Part of what I did in The Last Million was talk about what happened in Europe. What I want to do in my next book is look at what happens to the veterans, to the American soldiers. The myth is that they come home, that they're the greatest generation. They had fought the good war. They come home to a United States which welcomes them. There's prosperity and all's right with the world. But the experience of the American soldiers in war whether they were in the Pacific or in Europe or in North Africa was absolutely devastating. Whether they were on the battlefield or, you know, in the rear, um, when they got back to the United States, it was very, very difficult to, to readjust, uh, alcoholism, divorce, criminal behavior, homelessness, joblessness, um, went through the ranks of the veterans um, and unsettled the nation in the immediate post-war period. So, so I want to look at their experience. Um, I want to understand what happens to them.
1: I look forward to reading that. Well, thank uh, you very much. Thank you, David, for your important work and for being on the show today, too. It's been my pleasure. And thanks to our researcher Bela Pasikov. Bye- bye.